Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community Leeward Campus. Uh, we're really glad you're here. You all look so Christmassy. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, this time of year is always really fun for all of us, because not only do we get to greet uh, kids and family members and friends and uh, people that are uh, visiting family and community, we're just really delighted to have you here. So thank you for joining us. And again, I hope you'll join us for our Christmas Eve service. And before I, I think first service, I forgot to tell you, Merry Christmas. Maybe I'll get to tell you that. But I love Christmas time, and uh, I think you probably do as well. Uh, as a kid, I just couldn't wait for Christmas. And thankfully, my family opened most gifts on Christmas Eve. I don't want to start a war here. Um, but, you know, parents, you know, let them open at least some on Christmas Eve. Otherwise, you know, it's a long time, you know. Um, but kids, especially, I'm just so excited that you're here, and I know that Christmas, you know, preparations have been happening for a long time. You're out of school, probably, and uh, the presents are piling up under the tree, right? And you're getting really excited. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years, just having been around a lot of Christmases, is Christmas doesn't just happen. You know, we talk about Christmas preparations for a reason, don't we? Because for a fun Christmas to happen, a lot has to go into it. There's just a lot of planning. Kids, take that for granted. Your parents are working hard to make it a fun Christmas. And when we think about the first Christmas, the first century Christmas, sometimes I think as we read the story, and most of us, if we have a Christian tradition or we've read the Bible, or we've been to church some, we know the Christmas story in Luke 2, right? And so we just kind of go through it, but we don't really think that all that went into it. Because the first century Christmas, the first Christmas didn't just happen. There was just a whole lot of planning that went into it. When you think about it, if you step back, we have to realize that behind the scenes, an unseen God was actively at work. He was planning it. Hundreds of years before, even as we'll look at today, before time, but hundreds of years, hundreds of years, the Old Testament prophets spoke of this Messiah that would come. One prophet in particular was prompted to write, the address of the Messiah, the one who would come, Jesus, Bethlehem. So the plan of the first century Christmas was operating for a long time. Everything was planned. It didn't just happen. Not only is that the case, as we walk through history, when the first century opens and the New Testament opens, we see that an angel is dispatched to Mary. Remember that? Gabriel. And not only to Mary, I mean, that's a pretty big message to deliver to Mary, but also to Joseph. An angel is sent to Joseph, and both Mary and Joseph are told specifically that this child is a unique child. This is a, a, a different kind of conception, a miraculous one, a miraculous birth. Everything has been scripted. And not only that, if we think about the first century Christmas, angels, lots of them eventually, were dispatched to some scruffy shepherds outside of Bethlehem to announce that Jesus was born. Everything went according to his script. And not only that, Caesar Augustus was prompted to issue a decree that all the Roman world would be given a census for taxes. And so Mary and Joseph, again, the backstory is, were required to leave Nazareth. She was very pregnant on a very probably tired and sad donkey. <laughs> And made their way all the way to Bethlehem. All went according to script. Not only the stroke of a pen, 
but the rearrangement of a planet or a star. Because you remember that a star was positioned or repositioned to let wise men from the east know that the king of kings was born. When we look at the first century Christmas, whether it's the stroke of a prophet's pen, the repositioning of a planet or a star, what we see is that everything was planned. Behind the manger, the manger scene was an unseen God who was orchestrating the whole thing. His fingerprints are smudged over the entire Christmas story. It was all planned. Now, at Christ Community this Advent season, we have been focusing on looking into the manger and allowing the curtain of time to be pulled back and to peer in to see the full story, the big story of the manger. And we have been looking through the lens of the Apostle Paul who wrote this marvelous letter called the Romans. In Romans chapter 8, Paul pulls back this curtain of time and he allows us to peer into the bigger story of the manger, Christmas story. And what we have seen so far and we will see with intensity this morning is that when God entered the manger, he had you in mind. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament. As we continue our series looking at this text, I want us to grasp the sense that God is orchestrating everything that's going on. It is an amazing story, and I think German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis, wrote this beautifully as he described the manger. He said this, No priest, no theologian stood at the manger of Bethlehem. And yet all Christian theology has its origin in the wonders of all wonders. That God became human. Holy theology arises from knees bent before the mystery of the divine child in the stable. The Apostle Paul, with his inspired pen, allows us to see this mystery of the manger. And it is stunning. In Romans chapter 8, we have looked at the broad sweeping of history, that God is orchestrating history, that all of creation and history is on the march to an ultimate end by God's good hand. As we pressed into Romans 8, beginning with verse 17, we begin to see that God has a plan for us and that we are his adopted children, those who embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are now adopted into a new family. And as a part of this new family, God has provided us an extraordinary safety and security and comfort. And so when we get to these verses this morning that we're going to look at, three verses that are power-packed. Verses 28 through 30, we are going to see two big truths that emerge from the Apostle Paul's inspired pen. First is that God is at work in the world. And secondly, God has a plan for the world. And I want to jump into these texts. They are deep texts, but they are profoundly relevant to our lives to wherever we are in our spiritual life this morning. First, verse 28 tells us that God is at work in the world. He is actively at work in the world. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
what Paul is saying is that God is at work in the world. God is getting what he wants to get done in the way and timing in which he wants to get it done. And the question for us in our vantage point, right, is that how is God working in the world working? How does God work? This is a big question we all face. I think particularly this Christmas. Because as a people, as a nation, perhaps we have never been more shaken to the core since 9-11 than what the tragedy that occurred at Sandy Hook a week ago. As a nation, as individuals, as those precious families in the community of Newtown, they have seen up close, we have wrestled up close with the hideous face of evil en masse in all its ugliness. And as we try to make sense of this broken world, we all struggle, we are all shaken to the core. We ask questions, I've asked questions. Why would God allow this to take place? What possible good could come from it? And we all have these questions, don't we? And closer to home, we drop off our children or our grandchildren at school this week, and we wonder, are they safe? We wonder if we are safe in a world that's gone badly awry. Sometimes I think if we know Romans 8.28 is one of the most common verses of the Bible, and if you are of a Christian tradition or been in church, many of you could quote Romans 8.28. Maybe this week you had it go through your mind and you go, whoa, time out. Sometimes Romans 8.28 is thrown insensitively like a grenade in a hospital room or in some other tragedy. That is tragic. Sometimes it's lobbed insensitively at a heart hobbled with grief. But it's true as they're important for us to grasp, even though it is commonly quoted and often misused. So I think what I'd like to do, if you would join in me, with me a bit, is to probe Romans 8.28. What is Paul saying here? And what I want to suggest is that at the end of the day, Paul is saying that God has the upper hand. That sometimes when we look at the world around us, right, and the evil and suffering and the struggles at our own life and the world, we say, really? You mean evil's not getting the upper hand? You mean God will have the last word? Paul says, yes, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. That there is a good at the end of the day, an ultimate good. And notice the progression of his logical thought. Paul is very logical, and he builds his thoughts on a threefold progression in this verse. The phrases jump out at us. All things for good, for his good purpose. So let's look just a little bit at this progression. First, all things. When Paul is saying God is working all things, what is he saying? Let's say what he is not saying. All things here does not mean that all particularities in the world are good. He's not saying that God is complicit in evil in any way. But what God is saying in this text, 
through the Apostle Paul is that God is so big, so great, so glorious that he can take the most hideous evil and ultimately accomplish a good from it. And what Paul is saying here is that nothing, nothing, nothing escapes God's sovereign, watchful eye of his world. Jesus said even a sparrow that falls, one little bird, doesn't pass by the Father's notice, his omniscience. Wow. Why does God seem to intervene sometimes? And why doesn't he? Some other times, from our vantage point. It's a tough question. I can't answer all that. We're given a bit of an insight, though, I think, in the Old Testament. It's an amazing story. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is the one that had the coat of many colors. The younger brother, who maybe is a little snotty, I don't know. His brothers do the most amazing evil to him. Unthinkable. They attack him. They abuse him. They throw him in a pit to die of dehydration. And bleeding is the picture. And they have their McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or whatever right next to him. They're just munching away as he's in a pit dying. His brothers. But some traders come along. You know the story. And they say, ah, why let him die? Let's get some money off him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. He ends up in Egypt. He survives. Makes his way from being the lowest in the totem pole. And as he begins to flourish, Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of sexual assault. He's thrown into prison. You talk about brutal. This doesn't make sense. But as the story goes, he is placed ultimately as second in command to the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh. There's Joseph. One day his brothers, his long lost brothers that did all that to him, come, show up in Egypt. They're hurting because of the famine. And what does Joseph do? Joseph forgives them. And he cares for them. And woven into this story is the most amazing thing that Joseph says. Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph understood that what they had done was evil. He doesn't gloss over it, but his eyes are open to a greater truth. See, God is able to take the greatest messes in your life and mine the greatest messes in the world and accomplish his ultimate good purpose for it. Nothing can thwart God's ultimate plan, even evil. Because God has the last word, evil doesn't. And what Romans 8.28 is telling us is there is not one thing in your life or mine this morning, not a chronic illness, not a bully at school, Not an awful boss who's out for you. Not a spouse that has abandoned you. Not one thing escapes the sovereign, watchful eye of God. This text says God causes all things to work together. And notice the all things move to good. But the question is, what is good? What is Paul saying? What is the good? Again, he's not saying every action or particularity in the world is good. 
Paul is not closing his eyes to the hideousness of evil. He is opening our eyes to a bigger story. That history in the world is guided by a sovereign God who has history on the march toward an ultimate good end for his ultimate glory. But notice the text for those who love him. Because the destiny of those who reject Christ is separation for him for all eternity. But those who love him, Paul has already said, have been adopted into his family. And there is an ultimate good that awaits. Notice the text says, according to his purpose. And again, what is the purpose that Paul has in mind? The thought throughout Scripture, and particularly Romans 8 in context, is God's glory. This idea of glory is woven through all the New Testament in Ephesians 1, three times as Paul contemplates the glory of our salvation, our rescue. It says, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. When we read the scriptures, we realize that we as human beings are the crown of creation. Even though we fell into sin and rebellion, God is rescuing us, and now we will one day be the signature of his new creation. We will experience life as we were created to, as full image bearers of God. We are his achievement, his crowning achievement, his signature achievement. And notice what that looks like in verse 29. If you peek ahead, you'll notice this idea is conformity to Jesus Christ, not our comfort. That we might be like Jesus, the people we were designed to be back in creation. So what we are saying in Romans 8.28 is not glibness about evil, not lightheartedness, not giving simple answers to deep questions that we can't fully answer. What we're saying is that God is good enough, wise enough, and big enough to take the most horrible mess and accomplish an ultimate good purpose. Romans 8.28, much of it is a mystery to us, and we need to realize that. It's awful hard for us to put the pieces together of life, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that as fallen creatures, we look at reality through like glasses that are blurry. We can't see because of sin well. So our perspective on the world is already blinded. But let's not forget that as finite creatures, we have a limitation built into our creation. We will never see full reality as God sees it because he has an infinite vantage point. Prophet Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament, had a good beat on this. He said, for God's ways are not our ways. We're not. Neither are his thoughts our thoughts. God sees fully. He sees the big picture fully. And not only that, the psalmist says in the Old Testament, let alone Peter says in the New, Psalm 90 that God is outside of time. He says, a day, Psalm 90, a day is like, no, a watch. A watch, not just a day, a watch is three to four hours. He says, a watch, a thousand years, is like a watch in the night, three to six hours to God. A thousand years, like a watch. Something that soldiers did way back in the old, in the night to protect. Three to six hours of watching the night. God is outside of time. 
God sees everything. God is at work in the world in all things for the good, for his purposes. But God has a plan for our world. Notice where he goes in verses 29 through 30. He says, and, and this text is very packed, so hang in there with me a little bit, okay? It's rich, it's beautiful. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a picture of God's grand, mysterious plan for you and me. Paul peers deeply into these two verses and he looks at the manger and theologians have described these five words as the five-link chain of our salvation or our rescue. Foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying. Not common words we use every day, right? It's not, when's the last time you used predestined and text someone, right? But it's very important to grasp the rich truths. I want you to notice a couple things, and I encourage you to read this more and study more. Paul uses language that is outside of time and then inside of time. These five words are centered around that. So what we have here is a picture of God's sovereign plan that is outside of time yet inside of time. Think of it maybe like this. It's kind of, I know this is kind of abstract stuff, but it's really important. All of us love stories, right? I mean, we're just story people. We love plays and stories, and this Christmas, we got two great ones. The Hobbit, which Liz and I saw last week, which was great. The Hobbit has a hero, little Bilbo Baggins. If you're into Hobbits, I won't tell you what he's. I mean, he's kind of an unlikely hero, dude, but you got all kinds of villains and one and orcs, and it's really fun, actually. Gollum is my, I hate this guy. I don't like Gollum. He just drives me crazy. He's the villain, one of the villains. So you have villains, heroes, you have twists and turns, you have rescues and ultimate triumph. Les Mis, the movie's coming out, right? Christmas Day. I don't know if I'll ever get a ticket, but I'm going to get one as soon as I can. Les Mis is classic. One of the greatest stories ever told. Not the greatest, one of the greatest. You have a hero, unlikely, Jean Valjean picture of redemption. Javert, a villain. Twists and turns, ups and downs, but at the end, there's ultimate triumph. We all love a good story. Paul's language echoes the greatest story. Imagine, in this case, God is writing a story. And in this case, it's not a 19th century France, it's not a Middle Earth, it is reality. God, in this case, is the writer and director. Imagine that. He writes himself into the story. He enters the story as an actor in the play for a time. And he will conclude the play. He opens the curtains. He draws the curtains. The play is all about him. It's a showcase of his glory for all eternity. The greatest story ever told was to describe the greatest God imaginable. Yes. 
God's plan is an unfolding story, and this is what Paul is alluding to. And in this plan, he has a threefold progression again. It is designed before time, it is orchestrated in time, and it is secured for all time. This is what he says. Notice, first, it's designed before time. Right away, verse 29, two words jump out at us. It's the word foreknown and predestined. Go, whoa. Foreknown, first and foremost, has the idea of foreloved. It has a relational idea. It's like, imagine a couple being married for 50 years. They know each other intellectually, yes, in many ways, but they love each other. It's a picture of knowing someone forever and loving them. That's the idea. Predestined, that's another big word. <laughs> the Greek language has a sense of marking out a boundary, like you know, you, uh, a basketball game, you know, has boundaries in and out. Or you, you do a game, you have boundaries, but you do it ahead of time. So this picture is God setting out the boundaries and choosing the boundaries. In this case, choosing people. Inherent in this idea of predestined is a choice. A previous choice. So this, I mean, this text... Theologians have debated for centuries. How did God choose those he chose? That's a tough one. On what basis did he choose? Was it as he looked down through time, would it, he choose those who would believe? Or those he would have believe? Hmm. I'm not going to solve all that. But I want to say that the Bible speaks both in paradox truth. That you and I have free choice to accept our Lord Jesus Christ or not. It might be like this. This is, this is limited because I'm limited. But remember time, outside of time is going on in this text. It's back and forth. Imagine with me God's eternal kingdom and imagine a gate Jesus calls it the narrow gate for lots of reasons, but one, we go through one at a time. And on that gate, because God does not have grandchildren, from time, as we think of eternity, we walk into eternity, and above that gate is whoever comes, whoever believes, may come. And as we walk through that gate into eternity, we look back, and above the gate, says, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Now, that's imperfect, but it gives a picture of both. Front side or the back side. Temporal side or eternal side. And sometimes I think at the heart of it is, it's hard for us to grasp this, but we struggle with God choosing, don't we? You know, we think of our own, we don't like choosing. I mean, if we choose, then someone's out, someone's in. You know, it's like picking up, uh, pick up game of basketball or... You know, friending someone on Facebook, you know, who's, who's chosen is cool, but man, if you're out, that's not fair. And we place this on God, but the story, the greatest story we told, has nothing to do with that. God didn't have to choose any of us to be redeemed, to be rescued. We were all condemned in our sin as fallen rebels on our way to a Christless eternity, you and me. That God would choose any fallen rebels is a testimony of his amazing grace. We must not malign him for unfairness. 
or that he doesn't know what he's doing. So it's really clear in this mystery, and it's a mystery, is his people are not an afterthought. His plan was settled before time. And when God entered the manger, he had you and me in mind. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm not going to read it, you can read verses 3 through 6, but it gives a picture that we are chosen before the foundation of time, adopted into his family. That's a mystery, isn't it? God's plan was designed before time, but it is orchestrated in time. Notice the three words that jump out next. First, Paul says we are called, and the idea of called here is an individual calling. Imagine with me if I had my cell phone, and I could call, if I had your number, I could call every one of you, right? I mean, almost everybody in the world seems to have a cell phone. Everyone has a number. So if I were going to call you, I'd call you individually, and I, I ring up your number, and you answer, hello. Imagine I'm God. Say, hey, I'm God. Yes, I didn't get a wrong number. That's what's so amazing. I know exactly your number. And picture, this is what Paul has in mind. I'm not sure he has a cell phone in mind, but it's God calling. It's the picture of a specific call to an individual. He has chosen you. He has you in mind. And imagine on this phone call, God says, it's like winning the lottery. You know? More, much more than that, actually. God says to you, um, not only have I chosen to call you, because I want you to be part of my family, but all your sins, all the junk in your life, everything you ever thought or done is now settled. You're not guilty anymore. Because of what Jesus has done, my son has done for you, he has taken all your guilt, all your sin, he's put it on Christ on the cross, and you are completely set free. You are justified. You are declared not guilty. Wow. But not only that, notice the next word, he says glorified. Big word. The picture here is that you now can experience the life you were created to live way back in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. That you will experience fully in body and all that you are, the glory of God, how you were designed to live. And Paul does something very sneaky here as a linguist. You'll notice glorified has the sense in English of a past tense. Do you see that? We would imagine him saying, future tense. You will be glorified because we're still in time. Uh-uh. Paul says, because of what Christ has done, you are safe and secure in him. It is as if you have already been completely glorified. It's a done deal for real. No question. Certainty. That's the picture from God's perspective. And that's the picture of being secured for all time. And if God is in charge of your life and mine, if he has a good plan, then why do we try to run our own life? One of the greatest challenges for me as a pastor and as a person is I like to be in control. At least think I am. You like the illusion of control, the barrage of control? We love deceiving ourselves that we are the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. We love pretending we are God. Well, we don't say that, but I often live like I am. One of my favorite theologians is Dr. Seuss, Theodore S. Geisel. Unbelievable. And Dr. Seuss nails it out of the park about our illusion of control, trying to be God, 
being king on the hill. Actually, it's king on the pond. It's a great book. If you've not read it, I couldn't believe first service people hadn't read it. It's Yertle the Turtle. Have you read it? This is a Christmas reading for you all, okay? Add it to your Christmas list. But Yertle the Turtle is fabulous. It's the story of Yertle, the top turtle, the king on the pond, who thinks he's in charge of the world. He's in control of everything. So he stacks all the other little turtles. He steps on all of them, gets to the very top. And he's basking in his glory. And all of a sudden, little Mac, a little turtle in the mud, way down, burps. You haven't read it. You've got to read it. It's great. He burps. And the whole chain, everybody just collapses and falls like dominoes. And here's Yertle the turtle, the king of the pond, in the muck of the mud, realizing he is not king of the pond. He's not in control. Dr. Seuss reads our mail. There's a lot of Yertle the Turtle in us, isn't there? The friends we have, the health we enjoy, the career we have, the children we have, the money and stuff we have. We're Yertle the Turtle until it all comes down. And we realize the bubble has burst. That God is the one in charge, not us. Madeline Engel, this brilliant writer, described her bubble of control bursting brilliantly. That's what she said. Someone has altered the script. My lines have been changed. Somehow I thought I was writing the play. The Christmas story tells us that God is the one that writes the play. Not only did he write it, he entered it. And it's all about him. But he invites us into the story. Christmas story, more than anything else, should remind us that God is in control and we're not. He is in the driver's seat. And one of the things that has been so hard, I think, for all of us, and particularly the community of Newton, Connecticut, or Newtown, Connecticut, to process is that though they tried to protect their precious children, they tried to do everything they could, they could not. That there's some things in this broken, evil world that we cannot control. So when our grief is overwhelming, our fear stalks us, when answers evade us, where do we turn, dear friends? The manger tells us, it points us to the one who's really in control. Will you lean on him and his promises this Christmas? I grew up in a church context since I was this high. And one of my favorite old hymns And if you come from that tradition, you might start singing it. It's called Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. I can tell some of you guys know that one. But I love these words. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. I'm leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. So whose arms are you leaning on this morning? The good news of the manger is that you and I in Christ are safe and secure for all time. Not based on what we have done, but because the finished work of the cross. And If you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith and repentance of your sin, you are fully pleasing to God. You are secure in him. You are safe no matter what you face. 
You have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to prove. And the scriptures say you are his beloved. So will you trust him with your life? Your hopes, your dreams, your relationships with those precious ones you love. The writer A.W. Tozer said it so well. He said this, it is as if God were saying, what I am is all that you need, all, what I am is all that need matter to you. For there lie your hope and your peace. I will do what I will do and it will all come to light at last. But how I do it is my secret. Trust me and be not afraid. This time of year at Christmas, we sing this old sentimental song, have yourself a merry Christmas, right? I won't sing it, I promise. Let your heart be light. From now on, your troubles will be out of sight. It's a nice song, but just pretending your troubles are out of sight will never give you a Merry Christmas. Story of the manger will. The good news of Christ will. So will you have yourself a Merry Christmas? I want that for you. You may be feeling lonely this morning. You may be in a time of fearfulness. You might not know for sure if you know Christ this morning. You may know where you're, what you're about, what your life's about. But let me tell you, your heart can be merry and bright this Christmas. If your heart is in the right place and your trust and hope is in the right person. This text tells us with an exclamation point in time throughout all eternity that God is in charge. And it calls us to this question, will you trust him? Will you trust him to care for those you love? To hold you closely when you feel alone? To guide you when the path is murky and dark? to give you hopeful confidence in troubled times. God's holy word, God's incarnate word, says to us that at the dawn of creation, he had you in mind. When he entered the manger, he had you in mind. When he stretched his hands out on a cruel cross, he had you in mind. And when he rose from the dead, Gloriously had you in mind, and when he returns, one day the king will come again with you in mind. So will you trust him? Will you delight in him? You are his beloved, if you know Christ. And will you remember him? Isn't it interesting? One of the things we tend to do is we tend to forget a lot. And in the Christian church, there is a glorious tradition handed down by Jesus himself called the Lord's Table. We're gonna gather around the Lord's table this morning. And at the heart of that is remembering Jesus and the big story. And as we gather around the Holy Communion table, we wanna remember afresh this morning the story of the manger. Jesus, when he gathered his disciples around him on that night, he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As long as you proclaim or take this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take the bread and dip it into the cup this morning as God's people, may we remember Christ and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great story of Christmas. We thank you that the manger is not just about the past, it is about a present and the future. And Father, in this quiet moment, may we reflect on what Christ has done for us and may we respond with repentance and faith and a sense of confidence in you. And may we celebrate with great thanksgiving as we break the bread 
and the juice and drink the juice. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, dear friends, at Christ Community, we practice open communion. And what that means is you do not have to be a member of Christ Community to come to one of the stations around the auditorium. But it does mean